Good morning. So the first of two scripture readings is taken from Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 to 67. Thank you. If you do not revere this glorious and awesome name, you will find no repose, no resting place for your soul, for the sole of your foot. You will have an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, oh, if only it were evening. And in the evening you will say, oh, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. morning. We're now in week three of this sermon series we're calling Breaking Free, and we're talking about negative emotions. Does Christianity offer us anything, give us any resources to deal with these negative emotions that are universal, everybody experiences them, come into our lives, what do we do about them when they come? So in week one, we talked about anger. Week two, last week, we talked about guilt. This week in week three, we're talking about anxiety. Uh, and it's yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, this is the this is week everybody's been waiting for. Uh, it's an anxious city. It's an anxious city. It's an anxious time. Uh, Auden, W.H. Auden, uh, this was, you know, 50 years ago, called it, uh, had a poem titled The Age of Anxiety. He said this is the age of anxiety, and that's way more true now than it was when he wrote it. So what do we do about our anxious hearts. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. No more introduction than that. There's going to be four sections today, four questions I want us to ask about anxiety. First, what is it? Second, what amplifies it? Third, what causes it? And then fourth, what can we do about it? What is it? What amplifies it? What causes it? 
and then what can we do about it? Those will be the four sections to this morning's sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, what is it? We, I want to talk about it kind of experientially. And we said in, in week one that anger was a burning sensation. We said last week in week two that guilt was like a feeling sick, like a nausea. Anxiety isn't either of those. It's not a burning. It's not a nausea. What anxiety is, is probably best described as a, a feeling of tightness, a constriction. And if it's strong enough, if it's intense enough, it can, it can almost feel like a, a choking, you know, like a, a panic attack. We've talked about this before on Sunday. The word worry, actually, the English word worry is, is very telling. Originally, it's a verb that meant to, to strangle around the neck, to choke. And you can see the, the uh, original usage of this word preserved in one phrase, one way we phrase it today. You know, the, the more common way of phrasing it is to say, uh, what are you worrying about? Or what am I worrying about? Like, you are the, the worrier. But there's another way that people used to ask that question and sometimes still do, which is they would say, what's worrying you? What's worrying you? And that's really how it is. We are not the worriers. We are the worried. We get worried. We get strangled. We get choked by these thoughts and these circumstances that wrap their, their hands around our neck to the point that we feel like we can't breathe. So what types of thoughts? What types of circumstances? Well, it's somewhat similar to anger. You know, we talked in week one about how anger is this burning that arises when things don't go the way we want them to in response to violated expectations. Anxiety is almost like uh, pre-anger because all anxiety is is just the fear that things aren't going to go the way we want them to, the fear that something bad is going to happen. And what makes it anxiety is it's not just that you have the fear, but then you have it again and again and again, and, and you can't stop having You can't stop thinking about this, this thing, that this bad outcome that you don't want to happen, that you're afraid might happen, and it wears a groove in your brain. You know, we know that actually physically, scientifically now. We know that it wears a groove in your brain, and you just keep having these thoughts. And not only are they repetitive, but they can also escalate. So you start with a small fear, and that leads to a little bit bigger fear, and that leads to a little bit bigger fear. And before you know it, you're sitting there thinking about your kids dying and losing your job and, you know, this disease that you might have. And it really spins out of control very quickly. So it could be about big stuff. It could be about small stuff. What's interesting is I don't think it really matters that much whether it's about big stuff or about small stuff because of probability. So let's say that uh, the intensity of your anxiety is the, the magnitude of how bad something would be multiplied by the probability of whether that thing might actually happen. Well, it's going to net out kind of the same. So if you're afraid of this really, really bad thing happening, you know, if you can't stop thinking about you know, your kids getting hit by a car or something terrible like that. It's very unlikely, but it's really, really bad. So multiplied, it's still, that's a lot of anxiety. Same thing if you've got this really small fear of something that it's not that bad, but it's actually somewhat likely, somewhat probable. So you, you could be really anxious about small stuff or big stuff. doesn't really matter. Either way, it's this, this tightening, this constriction, this feeling of choking when you have these repetitive, escalating fears about outcomes that you feel like you have no control over. That's the first section. That's what it is. And I wanted to, to do that one pretty quickly because I want to save time for these other sections. So first, what is it? Second, what amplifies it? What I want to talk about second is 
what amplifies it. And if you remember back to when I listed the sections, you'll notice that we're actually taking, logically, we're taking sections two and three out of order. So we're saying what amplifies it first, and then what causes it, we're going to talk about next. So why are we doing that? Well, because we actually misidentify and think that the things that amplify it are the things that causes it. And that's not true. So what I want to do first is I want to just get all these things out of the way. These factors that admittedly do amplify anxiety. These things do make anxiety worse, but they're not actually where anxiety is rooted. They're not the source of it. Because in the next section, what we're going to talk about is the source of anxiety is actually spiritual and philosophical. These aggravating factors, these amplifying factors that make anxiety worse are more physical, they're more surface level, so they're easier to put our finger on. You know, we can, I, we can see these things, and we think, oh, that's what's causing it. It's not what's causing it, it's just what's making it worse. So what are these things? What are these amplifying factors? First one would just be genetics. You know, you, some people just by their brain chemistry are going to be more anxious than others and are going to be more prone to anxiety spinning out of control than others. So I want to acknowledge that right up front because I don't want anything I say this morning to be construed as you know, anti-medicine or anti-psychiatry. That's not right at all. And for some of you, you know, nothing I say this morning is going to make any difference at all unless you get on the right meds. So for some people, that is part of the equation. You say, well, if it's a physical problem, then why are we talking about it in church? Because it's not a physical problem. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's what we're going to talk about next. It's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. But physical factors, biological factors, neurological factors can amplify it and make it a lot worse. That's the first thing. Second thing along the same lines, not only genetics, but the way you were raised, your upbringing. So here we're talking about nature and nurture both. Um, is going to have a significant role in, in how anxious you are, how prone to becoming anxious you are. Those two together, you know, nurture and nature, that's basically like your, your operating system for life that you've been given. And that's not to say you can't rewrite it. That's not to say that you can't debug it. But it's still silly to ignore the fact that it's there. You have this OS that's going to determine a lot about how you interact with the world. So nature and nurture, your genetics, your upbringing. The, the next one would just be circumstances. If you're afraid of bad things happening, and then all of a sudden bad things start to happen, well, it's going to feed the fear, and you're going to, you know, it's going to be more prone to, to spinning out of control. Another one would be uh, environmental factors. So even just really simple stuff like noise and lighting. You know, there's been all sorts of studies. If, if you're exposed to constant noise, you're going to be more anxious. You're going to be more on edge. Same thing with lighting. Fluorescent lighting has been shown to increase anxiety. Or not getting outside enough, not getting enough natural lighting has been shown to increase anxiety. Fifth, uh, closely related to that would be your body, you know, things you do with your body. So lack of exercise, lack of proper sleep, not eating right, all those things are going to contribute to anxiety. And they're all interrelated, you know, you're not exercising, so you're not sleeping as well. Or the things we put into our body, you know, caffeine obviously negatively impacts sleep. Caffeine... Uh, is like designed to make you anxious. That's the whole point of caffeine. It's like a, a drug to like make you more anxious. And then we're, we're taking it and thinking, why are we anxious? So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the fifth category. A sixth one, very similar to caffeine, and just this is kind of obvious, is uh, the way we use technology. And I've talked about this before. It's been written about all over the place, so I don't want to spend a long time on this. And, you know, I, we've all read this, and we still don't uh, do it. So I don't know what me saying it is going to make any difference. But we just know for a fact 
Whether you believe God created us, whether you believe it's evolution, doesn't matter. Everybody agrees that human beings, as we find ourselves right now, are not equipped to deal with this constant incoming stream of information. We just can't handle it. And we think we can, but we can't. And so every time you search, every time you get a new email, every time you get a new text, every time you look at a new post on, on social media, all day, and for, for a lot of us, that's hundreds of times a day, it is literally frying our brains. Not to mention the fact that a lot of these uh, new information pings are, like, have a physical uh, sound or a, like a vibration attached to it. So we're walking around with shock collars on, and we're, trying to, we're saying, why are we anxious? Well, that, that could certainly be part of it. And then the seventh thing would just be content. The content that our minds are feeding on. So not only that we're letting this new stream of information in all the time, but what is that information about? What's the content of those stories that we're clicking on? And you, you all know this. You know, the content providers have a vested interest to get more clicks, to make it anxiety-producing. The, the worse the story is, the worse it makes you feel, the more you can't help but keep reading and click the next one and click the next one. That's in their best interest. It's not in your best interest as the reader. So those are seven factors that we just went through. And the reason I list so many of them is actually just to overwhelm you. I want to overwhelm you so that you don't try to work on any of those things or fix any of those things. Not to say that it wouldn't help, you know, and if you want to focus on one of them, fine. Uh, but the, the point is, you, if we think that anxiety is located in any of those areas, you know, for a lot of us, we just spin between these different theories, like, why am I so anxious? That's what we ask ourselves. Why am I so anxious? Well, maybe it's because I'm not getting enough exercise. We work on that. Well, maybe it's because, you know, of the way I use technology. We work on that, and it's, you know, these six or seven things, and we could have probably listed five or six more, and you just keep working on one after another, and then you get anxious about that you're not doing well enough in any of those areas, you know? So you think, okay, I'm anxious because I don't sleep enough. And so then you try to sleep better, and you feel anxious about sleep, and then you sleep worse, and then you're more anxious, and it's just a a really bad scene. So, again, I'm not saying don't work on any of those things, because all those things will help. If If you use your phone differently... It'll help. If you exercise, it'll help. If you, if you practice breathing exercises or get outside more or go on walks or whatever it is, all of those things will help. But all of those factors, everything we just listed, they're all just amplifying factors. They're all just aggravating factors. And they can make anxiety a lot worse. They can turn the volume way up on it. But even if you did everything right, are you ever going to get anxiety to go away? The Bible's answer to that is no. Even if you did everything right, you could turn it down, but this, this feeling, this fear about these things happening that you don't want to happen, you could never make it go away because the, the cause, the root source of anxiety isn't in any, any of those areas. So that takes us to the, the next section. The third section this morning, the cause. What causes it? What truly causes anxiety? And the answer is almost too obvious. You know, the reason we miss it is just because it's, it's so obvious. It's, it's hiding in plain sight. Because we said anxiety is this, this feeling, this tightness, this constriction about thinking about these things, we, these bad things that we don't want to happen, whether it be small things or big things. What's the root of that? Well, it's the simple fact that we live in a world where these bad things do happen. 
and they happen all the time, and they happen, it seems, kind of at random, with no rhyme or reason. It seems senseless. So the things that people are afraid of, you know, like unless you're delusional and you're you know, afraid of being abducted by aliens or whatever it is, most people, even, even if it's something super improbable, even if you're afraid of your, your kid being hit by a car or abducted or dying of this rare disease, it happens. It happens to some kid somewhere. That's why you're afraid of it. And you say, this isn't helping. You know, why, why, are, you, why are you talking about it like this? But it, I think we have to face it. Because I think any solution to anxiety that ignores the truth, that ignores the facts, in the end isn't going to help. You know, we could stick our head in the sand and pretend like it's not so. But, you know, John Adams had that famous line, facts are stubborn things. Facts are stubborn things. And the fact is, terrible stuff happens in the world all the time. And maybe nothing terrible happened to you yesterday, and maybe nothing terrible happened to you the day before. But you know somebody who it did happen to, and going back to the content thing, you can read your stories on your phone about people all over the world. It's happening somewhere all the time. What makes us anxious is that we live in a world like that. And the senselessness of it is the issue. The fact that it feels like there's no rhyme or reason, that there's no meaning to it, that the universe is basically out of control, that our lives are out of control, and that there's no one at the helm. There's no one steering the ship. And for, if you're a Christian, you know, the, the other way you could put that is the reason we're anxious is because we do not believe that God is in control, and we do not believe that he's good. We don't believe that he's taking care of us. Brittany and I had a close friend, have a close friend, who was uh, really struggled with anxiety a number of years ago, debilitating anxiety. And uh, it's gotten a lot better. It's still something she deals with today. But I wanted to read you something she said, because she did a nice job at connecting these fears she had. And it was everything I've talked about, you know, fears about her, her kids. It started when she became a mom. And as soon as she became a mom, she looked at this kid and all of a sudden had all these fears that she had never had before. And it really spun out of control. But what she recognized is that there was a spiritual component to it. So let me read you what she said. She had just, this was in an email, she had just outlined all the things she was afraid about. And then she says this, she says, The logical response you would think would be just trusting that God is working all things together for good, that he has a plan, even if there's some hard stuff in it, etc. Which leads me to another issue. I've been haunted by big picture spiritual doubts. This is a woman, by the way, that's been a Christian her whole life, you know, grew up in church. What if God isn't real? What if religion is just a thing we use to help make sense of our lives, like sociologists say? How could God exist but allow such trauma and suffering? Probably he exists but doesn't really care about any of us, or what happens to our kids? Cycle back to all the fears about my son. There's no God, so all we have is this life, and all I have is my husband and my son, and something bad could happen to either of them at any point because no one is in charge of taking care of them. Life is only about however many years you have with your family and these brief few years that will go too fast but might be robbed any day by a tragedy or simply time passing too fast. My lowest points over the past couple of weeks have been as I'm trying to read my Bible to get a spiritual foothold, and I start panicking because the Bible just seems like a story that someone made up like any other fictional book that I've ever read. So I start panicking, thinking, we're all just fools for having believed this. 
And maybe that's not you in terms of you wouldn't write that email. You know, maybe you wouldn't say those things. But let me press you on something. You, know, you say, no, 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 I'm fine. I, I believe it. I believe God's in control. I believe God is good. I believe the Bible is true. I don't struggle with those doubts. But then why are you still anxious? If you really, see, see what she says is logically, logically, if I really believed that God was working everything together for good, my anxiety would have the, lo- the, the legs cut out from under it. And that's true. You know, when she uses that phrase, she's, she's alluding to one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Well, if you believe that, not, not if you said you believed it, not if you heard somebody say it in church or memorized the verse, but if you really believe that in your heart of hearts, then you could not be anxious. It would be impossible. You could be sad. You could be angry, but you could never be afraid of these things happening because you know, well, God is at the home. He is taking care of things, and there's a, a meaning to it. There is rhyme and reason to it. But we don't believe that. We don't believe that, and so our hearts are anxious. And all those other factors that we talked about before are certainly part of it. They make it better or make it worse. But the foundation of it is this doubt that there really is meaning and that God is in control. That's the third section. What's the root of anxiety? What's the cause of it? Fourth and finally this morning, what can we do about it? I know this has been not only anxiety producing, but also depressing so far. You know, this is like uh, the the essence of making things worse, not better. So I want to try to fix that a little bit at the end here and say, is there anything we can do about this on on the root level? Not just the, the aggravating factors, but on the root level. And there is. You know, we just let's just review what we just said. There's this belief. There is this belief that if you held it, and you don't, but if you did, if you believe that God was totally good and totally in control of your life and loved you and was watching over everything that happened to you and had a design and everything happened for a reason, if you believed that, then your, your anxiety would be neutralized. So the only thing we can really do, the only thing you can really do to deal with your anxiety is to believe it. And you say, well, well, how? You know, I don't, so, so how? The answer, again, it's one of those that's just too obvious. We miss it. You just have to choose to believe it. You just choose to believe it. You say, no, it's, that's ridiculous. You know, you can't just choose to believe something. You either believe it or you don't. You're either convinced or you're not. You know, the reason I don't believe it is because I've seen all this evidence to the contrary. And, you know, I came to this belief organically that God's not in control. I can't just choose to believe otherwise. But actually, you can. William James was this uh, professor of psychology and philosophy at Harvard during the turn of the century. And, you know, is widely considered maybe the most original, insightful American mind ever. Certainly in the top ten, you know, any time that, that conversation is had. Uh, the father of American psychology and in many ways the father of American philosophy always mentioned as one of the top two or three philosophers America has ever produced. And uh, right around the year 1900, he gave this lecture to the Yale and Brown Philosophical Societies combined called The Will to Believe. 
It has since become one of the most famous essays in American history. And what he says is, he says that this idea that, that the scientists are trying to push on you, that you have to believe everything based on evidence, and you can only believe something once there's sufficient evidence. He says that is crazy when it comes to theological beliefs, and when it comes to God. He said because there's never going to be enough evidence one way or the other. And that's why the essay is titled, The Will to Believe. It's a choice. And the, the example, you've heard this before. You've heard uh, talk of the leap of faith. He says, you just have to jump one way or the other. You just have to commit. You either have to act as if there is no God or act as if there is. You either have to act as if God loves you and is in control or act as if he isn't. But either way, you're not really doing it based on evidence. You're just making a choice. And so with you, when it comes to your belief that God is not in control, you know, you say, let's, let's put it differently because the way you think of it is, well, I struggle to believe that God is in control. I struggle to believe that God does love me and is ordering everything in my life. Well, if you put it differently, though, what you're really saying is, I do believe that he's not. I do believe that he isn't taking care of me. You say, no, 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 I'm not sure. But how are you living? If you're living like he isn't, then you are sure. You've already made your decision. You can say, oh, I'm, I'm agnostic, I'm on the fence, I don't know. But the way you live, the way you feel, tells you what you really believe. So you are living your life as if, you know, all your anxiety is premised upon this assumption that God is not real, that he is not in control, that he does not love you. But you have no proof for that. You have a few examples, but you have no real proof. If you had to try to prove that in court, you couldn't do it. You're just believing it on faith. You're believing it that he is not in control on faith. And you get to choose. You get to choose what you have faith in. So the first question is, what do you want to believe? What really honest atheists will admit is that they don't want there to be a God. I've heard some really brilliant and really honest atheists say this openly. They say, I started with not wanting there to be a God, and then I figured out all the reasons for why I didn't think there could be. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. Because what William James is saying is, what other way is there? But you can do the same thing. You can do the exact same thing. Do you want God to be good? Do you want God to be in control? You have to start with that. If you can't even answer that question, then I can't help you. But what people will often say is, I'd like to believe it. I wish I could believe it, but I just can't. Well, you can. If you want to, you can. You just have to decide to. You have to commit. You have to choose to believe that he is who he says he is, and he is taking care of your life. Then what? Then you just beat your own heart into submission. You just remind yourself day after day after day, week after week, this is who God is. God does love me. God is in control no matter what happens. And that's what you saw in Psalm 139 this morning. You saw a true master, David, doing this. He says at the end of the psalm, you know, it's this beautiful psalm that's quoted on all kinds of different occasions for all kinds of different reasons. But you don't find out in the, at, until the end, what's he doing? Why is he writing this? He's writing it because he's anxious. He says at the end, search me, God, and know my anxious thoughts. 
So what does he do? This is a spiritual master. This is one of the guys that's been closer to God than anybody who's ever lived. How does he deal with his anxiety? You heard it during the scripture reading, but I want to show it to you again. He starts by saying, you search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And this is that part that we were saying where nobody can really understand this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So when you look at that, ostensibly this is a prayer. Ostensibly he's praying. He's telling God these things. You search me, Lord, you know me. You know when I say it, when I rise. But God knows all this already. You know, God doesn't need to be told about God's own sovereignty or God's own control or God's own goodness. Who is he really talking to here? He's talking to himself. He's telling his own heart, this is how it is. And that's what a person of faith does, is they just wake up every day and tell it to themselves. Again, that's what we do every Sunday. You know, why do we spend half the Sunday singing every week, just singing these songs, God is good, God is in control, God loves us? Because we're just beating it into our hearts again. We're reminding ourselves again. We're arguing with our own hearts and saying, we will believe this. And that is worth a lot more than any amount of intellectual argument. You know, you say, I'm just afraid of, uh, you know, fooling myself. Just believing it just because it feels good, but it's not true. And, you know, just uh, drinking the Kool-Aid, you know. But, you know, I I mentioned a, a minute ago that William James is always considered one of the top two or three American philosophers. Well, the other person that's always talked about in that conversation along with William James is this guy, Jonathan Edwards, who's a pastor and theologian in the 1700s in Massachusetts. You know what his whole life work was? Thousands and thousands of pages, the intellectual and philosophical defense for why God good is good and why God is in control. So he's a lot smarter than you and I, and you could, if you want, you could go and try to read all that, or you could just say it to yourself again and again and again, because there is the intellectual justification out there, but that's not what makes a difference. What makes a difference is the decision, the decision to believe it. So you, you remind yourself, and then once you remind yourself that that's who God is, so you, you choose to believe it, you remind yourself of it, and then what you do is release. You surrender. So look what he says toward the end of the psalm. You heard this read earlier. There's this stanza where it says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So darkness is what he's afraid of. Darkness, the night, this is, you know, poetic language for the things that he's anxious about. It's a psalm about anxiety. He's anxious about all these things. And he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, which is what you say. You say, I know this bad thing's going to happen. I know it's not going to go the way it's supposed to go. Surely the darkness will hide me. If I say that, well, what's the antidote to that? Notice what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do is say, no, that'll never happen. Because you know what? It might. The darkness might hide you. It might become night. The very worst thing that you can possibly think of might happen. He doesn't say, the darkness will never hide me. What he says is, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, 
and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. He didn't let it come. Whatever the worst thing is, if I have you, if I am held by you, if you are in control, then let it come because darkness looks like light to you. So what do I have to be afraid of? What do I have to be anxious about? As Christians, you know, this is David's writing this 1,000 B.C. Now sitting here 2,080, we have something he didn't have. We have the cross, which is the perfect example of the, the darkest possible moment. Things going the worst they could possibly go, and then God finding a way to take even that and use it for good, for the redemption of mankind. Even the darkness is not dark to you. That's how you do it. That's how David did it. Not saying it's never going to happen, but saying even if it does, God loves me, God is good, and God is in control. And then you can face anything. But you have to choose. You have to choose to believe it. So I guess my challenge to you this week is, you know, you're so good at doubting this. You're so good at doubting God and doubting that the universe makes sense and and doubting that he really is in control. And my challenge is, why don't you just flip it around? Just try it for a week. And instead of doubting God, doubt yourself. Doubt your own heart. Doubt your doubts. And say, what would happen if I just chose, if I just tried, if I just decided to believe that this is who God is? And what would happen is you would become a person, the way the Bible talks about it is, if you do this, there is a peace that passes understanding. Again, it's not on an intellectual level. Peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just we feel like we can't believe it. We feel like somehow it would be wrong to believe it. Like we'd be betraying our minds or our education. But we know that it's up to us. We know that you've given us the ability to choose. I pray that you give us a little bit of help. I know that that we have to make that choice ultimately, but I ask that by your spirit you would pull on us, you would tug on us, that you give us some sign, some evidence that we can go on to believe that you are good and that you are in control no matter what happens. And with that belief in place, we ask that you would show us how to surrender our lives to you, to offer up every fear looking to you instead of to the fear and seeing that that with you even darkness can be as light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.